I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. About this year, though, with the new album, You and Your Friends, originally planned to be called Fuckboy Blues. Was that the original title? Yeah, yeah. We were like, we were, yeah, that's what we were thinking. And then, you know, we kind of talked to the powers that be, and they were like, ah, there's some issues with calling it that. And we just kind of gave into it. But I mean, I don't know. My grandma, uh, like, even the fact that there was a song called Fuckboy Blues, she found out on Facebook <laughs> and uh, sent me the most heartbreaking, like, I, you know, I, I was so proud of you and what you were doing. And like, then I see the song title and I'm just worried about you. How could you ever be so crude kind of thing? So I'm happy the album's not called that just for my grandma's <laughs> sake. But yeah, I mean, it, uh, it was a good title. It's still a song title. So kind of got it in there. Was that track originally supposed to be on the, the last record though? Was it kind of circulating around that time? Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, it was like one of the last songs we had written before uh, recording the first record being so normal and we were going to put it on, but it really wasn't coming out that good. And then when we were coming back to do another record, it was kind of like, well, what songs do you guys have? And we were like, well, we've got two written and we had totally forgotten about Fuckboy blues. And, uh, and they were like, okay, well just give us anything you have. And we were just kind of like, okay, well, you know, send a simple demo of this song in. And uh, it was our first time working with the record label. Like we had no idea what the experience was going to be like, but they were like, this song is, is the song that we want to like promote as the first single. This song's amazing. And we were all kind of going like, really? Like this song didn't make the last record because we thought it sucked so much. So to be honest, like I, I like the, what we made out of it, but I feel like now looking back on it, we were just like very unsure of what we were doing coming into this relationship with a label and management and all these things. And if like, you know, we had been figuring out ourselves, I don't know if we would ever would have released that song. It was just the reaction that was so excited about it. That we were like, okay, like maybe you hear something in this that we don't, 
I think in hindsight, uh, you know, there was like good reception to the song. And if anybody likes the song, I'm happy it's out. I'm happy we recorded it. But like writing a second record, I'm kind of like going off your question here, uh, <laughs> but I'll, I'll try to keep it concise. Like writing a second record uh, when the first one is done well is such a interesting exercise because you've we've been able to like create something that people like in a basement, like just recording our, you know, ourselves and yeah, not really having too much influence from like other things like management or label. And then the second record comes and it's like, okay, how do we do this as a career? And I look at Fuckboy Blues as like a thing that was just part of the process of learning how to do that because now we know like what lines to draw, like, okay, we want to do this or we want to do that. And we're not like kind of just feeling around in the dark anymore, but Fuckboy Blues was kind of like, okay, this is, we'll just put this song on the record because, you know, the label likes it. But uh, yeah, I think in hindsight, you know, we might've done things a bit differently. Did it change a lot though when you kind of, do you almost have to transport it into the, like transport it into the soundscape of the new album? Because it's quite a different sound to each record, so does it change as a result of that once you bring it into that kind of arena? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, production has so much to do with that. We've had two great producers that we've worked with. Harley Small, who's just like a friend of ours, who did the first EP and first record, and then John Congleton, who did the second record. But John was really like, okay, like, you know, sonically, I want to take this to a place that is a lot more weird and kind of like trippy. We ended up recording everything like pretty raw but then it was very affected when it was mixed and i think the whole soundscape of you and your friends is just like i can hear john's style and everything you know those decisions we made to be like i want my guitar to sound like this or i want my uh drums to sound like this and then john's influence and how he tweaked those sounds that we like gave him so uh that's that's such a big part of the recording process and he really had an impact in that way did you listen back to the initial demo as well once you had the kind of final mix of it just to see what kind of happened to it oh yeah absolutely yeah uh even like we recorded demos before we even recorded the final versions of of you and your friends and honestly at first it was tough because like being so normal was such a raw record it was just like okay whatever the amp sound is that's the sound that's making it onto the record then recording demos and then recording with John, I was listening back to the demos being like, oh, you know, like these demos are a lot more like live in the room. And these recordings that we did, the final versions are a lot more like, I, I feel like I'm not in the room as much with the music, but I think that ended up being cool because it was a step in a different direction. It was something we hadn't done before. And there was like some getting used to that that had to happen. But uh, yeah, I think that overall it was a really good thing. Do you remember the kind of initial conversations that you had with him about your guitar tones on the record? Yeah, well, I just honestly, like, I'm not much of a guitar tone guy. And uh, the biggest thing was, like, I just bought this brand new uh, amp called the JC120. It's a Roland amp, and it has this chorus and vibrato on it. And I was asking him, like, oh, do you have you worked with these amps before? Do you like recording with them? And he was like, I'm just so sick of the chorus sound on that amp on every single record everywhere. I was like, oh, damn, that's kind of why I bought it is <laughs> because I love the chorus sound so much. So there was like a constant battle for him being like, no chorus, like stop, it's too trendy. And and he really did actually push us in some different directions. He was like, try this phaser pedal. And now I, I use that phaser pedal all the time, you know, like he, uh, he pushed us in good directions in that way. But yeah, it mostly uh, was him kind of being the sound architect because I, I even still feel like I 
don't know what I'm doing when it comes to guitar tones very much. Have you noticed this influence continue as well in the stuff that you've been writing since? Yeah, definitely. Like I said, with that phaser pedal, um, you know, you just like learn about songwriting as, uh, as time goes on as a band. And really, I've started to appreciate it in different ways. Like I think, you know, when I was a teenager, I probably would have been like, well, pop music sucks. Like that's just a really easy, you know, barely any chords. There's no changes. It's just like a really easy melody. Uh, that's not good music. But now I kind of look at that kind of music as like, you're just trying to make something that gets stuck in your head as quickly as possible. And like, you're trying to make something hit as hard as possible. And there is an art to that. Not just anybody can do that. It might be simple, but it's like, you know, you, you have to be an architect with it and how you're setting things up and then delivering them in the song. So I think we just noticed uh, John's songwriting technique because we would sit down in the studio with him and he'd be like, okay, try moving this to here and see how this changes the energy of the song. And, you know, I remember him doing that on uh, a song that we have on the middle of the record called Second Life with Emily. And he really like rearranged the parts to that. And uh, just kind of like, soaking in his experience of songwriting was so beneficial for us and i think yeah we're definitely using that on this new record we're recording it's second life with emily is that an O2 manager as well i was gonna ask if that was where the name for it came uh, from. oh yeah no yeah you're right emily Gibra is our manager uh or one of our managers but no uh that song i gotta speak for neil here a little bit because he writes these tunes but uh he uh there was a girl in high school that he really liked and and there's some like you know the video game sims you ever play that game yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. uh there's a there's a version of that called second life that was like an online game and he would play that with her uh when he was like a kid and was just like you know had this hopeless crush on this girl so that's what that tune's about that's interesting because i always saw that as a kind of metaphor of this idea of someone being different in person i didn't realize it was actually quite a literal kind of yeah i think it i think it is the metaphor mixed in with the literal meaning you know and and yeah i i think the metaphor definitely applies there of just being like a you know having a, a digital wall between us versus not having one it is like yeah first person or or second person second life i was gonna ask as well does neil have fuckboy tattooed on his ass yeah he does oh man <laughs> it was like such an unfortunate uh night <laughs> for him uh but yeah i don't know and we were just so stupid at the time too i think we were all like 20 he had lost um this game crib uh and and the like punishment for losing this game five times in a row was getting skunk tattooed on his ass because when you get beaten that game it's called getting skunked and uh right before he was going he went to the bathroom to like clean off his ass so that you know our friend could stick and poke him and i was like oh, we should write something other than skunk wouldn't that be funny and our friend tom was like uh yeah well you should write fuck boy and our friend peter <laughs> who's in the band plays bass uh was like okay yeah i'll do it and he did it and uh at first neil did not take it well he was like this isn't jackass like you can't be doing this like what if i go to prison one day i was like don't go to prison dude like even before the tattoo you were not gonna do well in that place uh so i don't know he he likes it now he finds it funny but it was like pretty tense for like a week after we did that to him like because we thought it would just be hilarious and he was like no the, this is way over my line sorry guys which fair <laughs> enough i who wants fuckboy tattoo down their ass <laughs> i feel like fuckboys play a bit better than skunk though like you can kind of have more of a joke about it whereas skunk's just a bit yeah totally you don't want skunk tattooed. it's a better ass. story uh than if he had skunk tattooed on his ass that's for sure so i i kind of like i i remember doing that to him and 
uh, Peter, who had done the tattoo, just feeling so bad immediately. And our friend Tom, who had suggested it, was like, ah, I don't care. Like, you're being overly sensitive. And I was right in the middle where it's like, I'm sorry, but in a week, this will be really funny. And I think I ended up being right on that. So yeah, it, it ended up being a better story for sure. Did you all get matching tattoos in Vegas as well? Yeah, we did. We got we all got 7-2 offsuit, which is the worst hand you can have in poker. Me and Neil are really big poker players. We just like to play and we do online games together and stuff like that. But uh, we play this rule in our games where if you have a 7-2, in your hand and you win the pot, everybody has to tip you uh, a big blind, has to tip you like a hundred or something like that because you got everybody off of the, the pot or off of the flop with just seven two off suit. But the funny part of that is we all have that matching tattoo and our old manager who uh, we had a falling out with also has that tattoo. <laughs> so <laughs> the poor guy has like a matching tattoo with us and we don't even speak anymore. <laughs> so <laughs> it was like kind of self, a self-fulfilling prophecy in that way where, you know, the bad luck hand was really a bad luck hand. Every day he just looks down at his arm and feels bitter resentment. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> He's the kind of guy who had like a bunch of uh, really weird tattoos. So hopefully he wasn't too affected by it. But yeah, it's just kind of a funny story out of that night. Who's the better poker player then? Oh man, um, it's crazy how much Neil has gotten into it. I would probably have to say him. He uh, he's like just playing, and especially during COVID and quarantine, he's just like playing in day tournaments and like made six hundred bucks the other day online. And I was like, he's like, okay, I want to be a professional poker player, like on the side of doing music. And yeah, it, it cracks me up. But I'm just like there to do it with friends and stuff like that. So yeah, he definitely is a little more serious than I am. Did you play cards in Vegas when you were there? Uh, we played some blackjack in Vegas, yeah, uh, but no, not really. I think when we go on tour again, we'll have some fun with it. We were like trying to go to casinos in Nevada last time we were there just to play some poker on tour and do something fun. But uh, Mikey and Peter really aren't into gambling. Like, uh, like we'll try to you know just we'll try to just gamble in the hotel room, being like, okay, like let's just play blackjack, the four of us, let's go. And sometimes we can get those guys into it, but they're just like, they don't have the gambling bug in them like we do. And, you know, we're always just passing back and forth like $1 bills. It's nothing, nothing huge, but uh, yeah, uh, it's only half of us that are, you know, really into it. You always to play, you played disc golf as well. Was that quite a big game? Yeah, totally. Uh, we have played less disc golf this last year, but uh we were playing a lot uh, when we all kind of like lived in the same neighborhood. I was living with Mikey and Neil and Peter were living together uh, in a big group share house. And we were just like going up to the disc golf course every day for a couple summers there uh, and just, yeah, throwing around discs. So yeah, we're pretty into that. When we go on tour, we like have taken discs and, and gone and played in different courses and stuff like that. Was that all when you lived together or was that kind of before or after? Because you all used to stay together, right? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, yeah, we kind of like, we used to live all in this group house together and now we weren't playing any disc golf back then. But uh, basically, like we started going on tour and we were like, well, there's no way we can afford to pay rent while we don't have jobs and are just touring. So we all moved out of this big group house and uh, then things started going well enough that we could pay rent with just doing the band thing. And uh, Neil moved in with Peter and me and Mikey and our girlfriends. We all moved into a house together just like down the road. So 
we're still hanging out together all the time and stuff like that. Yeah, it was uh, really fun living together. That was that was only for a year, but that was like one of the most fun years we've ever had. We built this. We built a skateboard ramp in the backyard and uh, just like had had some really fun parties. It's, those are fond memories for sure. I feel like a year is the kind of optimal amount of time you want to do that. You want to have that experience, but you don't want it to kind of drag Dude, on too long. And it lasts you could not be more right. Yeah, that's uh, that's the nail on the head for sure. It's like. You know, I, I'm really thankful for that time in my life. Like, that's something I'll always remember. But you forget about the things that you didn't like about it. Like, you know, we just had a messy house all the time because there were six guys in one house. And, uh, and yeah, we couldn't keep anything clean. Like, it was a disgusting space to live in. You know, there's, like, there's friends I have that I can't live with. And I was chill with living with all those people. But I think if we were to have done more than a year you know, the stresses of having that many roommates and having that little personal space would start to get to everyone more. So yeah, you're, you're completely right on that. Is that when you had the, the backyard wrestling parties that inspired the music video for Fuck as well? Uh, no, that was after, uh, yeah, we had, uh, you've done your research, which I'm really impressed with Alex. Um, kudos. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that was, uh, when me and Mikey were living together, we had a wrestling themed birthday party for our friend, Dan. And we just like built a ring, uh, got some sumo suits and uh, yeah, our friend Dan is, is a good buddy of ours, but it's like, it was like planning a 12 year old's birthday party. <laughs> it was so funny. Uh, and then we all watched Nacho Libre that night, but basically the Fuckboy blues music video came out just out of the idea from having that party. And we were like, Oh, let's just recreate that. So, um, we actually went back to the house that me and Mikey lived in, which we had moved out of. Uh, and we asked our old landlord cause he was about to tear it down. We're like, can we just do one music video in this backyard real quick? And he said, yeah. And then they tore it down two months later. So that kind of like kept that house in me- in living memory through, through that music video, uh, which I was stoked on. It's got kind of kiss vibes to it as well. A little bit. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we love, I mean, we love Kiss. We love the idea of Kiss. I don't know. We don't listen to their music that much, but we dressed up as them for Halloween one year and uh, played a show at like a hometown show here in Vancouver. And it was like, oh, you know, I've always thought I wanted to be in a band and play music, but I've always actually just wanted to be Kiss because they look <laughs> the coolest playing music out of anybody that I've ever seen. So like playing a show in Kiss makeup was like, Okay, this is what it's all about. This is super badass. Did you feel like a rock star? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That night was super special for us because we were playing like a venue in Vancouver that holds a bunch of people, like more people than we had ever played to. Um, and we had gone to shows, you know, growing up all the time there because it was an all ages venue. So that was really like uh, anytime we get to play a hometown show like that is when the absurdity of what we get to do hits us the most. And, and we're just like, you know, feeling super grateful because we've gone and seen bands at this venue and here we are on stage ourselves. It's, it's really, really nice. You guys can do like a Wes Anderson version of Kiss with the outfits as well. Like Kiss always wore the same stuff, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, actually, yeah, a friend of mine was telling me the other day that uh, Kiss did a tour without like makeup and outfits and like it just didn't work, you know, it's such a part of their branding. Um, but yeah, I we kind of got into the outfits because we had, we were always just wearing like flannels and jeans and t-shirts before, which is like totally cool. But, you know, I think when you're starting out as a band, you don't always necessarily think of the, um, of like the image branding, which is more important than, than I think most people assume. And we kind of put on those, uh, we like went to the thrift shop and 
put on those outfits and afterwards we're like you know we look way better now than we ever do for any shows we should just wear this on stage for our next ep release which was like the next month that was the first bit of music we put out and then um uh we did that and we were like well we, sh- we could just do this all the time and to be honest it does take a lot of the pressure off like picking an outfit before the show because you know i think we would look like shit if we were to dress ourselves so it's really just more like having a school uniform and being like nice i don't need to worry about what i'm going to wear today uh, more than anything else and and it adds like a touch of branding too so it kind of works in our favor that way yeah for sure it gives you a really distinct look yeah yeah definitely and i mean honestly we're like not the most like artistic zany dudes like i know there's a lot of bands that uh you know i just like see their image and branding and and it's a good thing but they're like you know they've got crazy dyed hair and like they've got a very quirky or like distinct look about them and we're just kind of like regular ass dudes (laughs) and i think people are like you know not all people but that can be a bit boring and and maybe not draw you in as quickly if you're just like discovering a band or something like that. So I've heard people complain about the outfits too, actually. Like uh, I remember someone at Bonnaroo when we played that festival was like, yeah, it's like you guys were dressing up like hipsters, but then you just got into like normal clothes. And I was like, (laughs) yeah, I don't know. There's like an element of like being on stage to this, you know what I mean? Like, I'm sorry if you thought it was weird, we weren't bringing our true selves, but the truth is we're just like, super boring <laughs> so we need to dress it up a little bit i think as well that we think about you know someone like homer simpson would he be as like iconic if he wasn't wearing the same stuff all the time you've kind of got to have yeah. that thing you know yeah absolutely i think that like familiarity plays into that so much and and i really have to just shout out the um guy who is kind of our art director and does all our music videos lester uh he picked out those outfits and like kind of designed that whole look and and we would never have been able to like build a cohesive brand like he did so he was really the the architect of all that and and yeah it has definitely helped us a lot like yeah just with image and brand do you still have like a weekly monday morning call with him as well kind of speaking about the creative side of the band yeah yeah we do sometimes um we don't talk about that stuff very actively it's like something we did at the time but it's not like we're meeting up and trying to like figure out how to keep cultivating our creative image. Like we do a bit of that, uh, through, you know, talking about like, okay, like, do you guys want to make a skit video or something like that? And we'll, you know, kind of work on things in that regard. But now it's not like an ongoing conversation that we're frequently having. I love the job he did on the, the record, you know, like on the, I don't know what you call it, you know, the center of the record, you've kind of done the Bob Dylan riff. Oh yeah. Yeah. Totally. The, uh, the sticker on the center of the record. Yeah, yeah, he did such a good job on designing that. It made it look so old school and like, yeah, that was so, so sweet to be able to, you know, like see the Columbia Records logo printed on that. And I was going through all my dad's old records and uh, pretty much the same uh, sticker is printed on all those. So it was just really a feeling of like, whoa, you know, this is special. Like, I, I can't believe we've got the same looking record as a lot of these other bands. Yeah, it's funny how the Dylan Records got Black Crow Blues and you've got Fuckboy Blues as well kind of an update yeah, <laughs> that's true I, I actually never never thought about that but yeah that's very true <laughs> with the we were speaking about the outfits as well with a new outfit that you've gone for with the can of i don't know what kind of color would you say the turtleneck is kind of like bluey greeny turquoisey type thing yeah yeah i don't know uh royal blue something like that was that a, a deliberate nod to patrick the old oh band? yeah uh no it wasn't a deliberate no it's a patrick but uh but yeah we 
honestly, I, I found that turtleneck in a thrift shop maybe like three years ago. And I had always been like, uh, this is like such a nice turtleneck. I'm really going to try to push for wearing this next time, uh, next time we change outfits. So that was just my moment to pull that thing out. But yeah, Patrick was, uh, was a real good van. I miss that van a lot. Actually. I, I for the gas mileage was so bad, but it was just <laughs> such a fun van to drive. Did you actually give it away for free? Yeah, we did. Uh, we like, yeah, did that van giveaway contest thing and, uh, a band from LA called Palo Soprano. We were like, Hey, you won the van. And they were super excited. They're like, when can you drive it down to LA and deliver it to us? And we were like, Oh man, like you need to come get it from Vancouver. Like, uh, you're also going to need to put a, like uh, a little bit of money into it before you can drive it back to LA. And they were like, Oh, okay, actually, sorry. We didn't read that part of the contest rules and, and we'll have to give it up. So we were like, all right. Um, and ended up giving it to uh, a local band named Frankie. And we were like, okay, like take good care of it. Um, and they were super stoked. They were really grateful. And then like three months later, the transmission just totally blew out. And they were like left with this van that they had just sunk a bit of money into, but was like broken beyond repair. And I felt so, so bad. I was like, I'm so happy that band didn't come up from LA and try to drive this thing home after fixing it up just to have it break down on them. So we actually got like the last life out of that van uh, that we could. And I, I thought it had a few more tours in it, but not quite. How old was it when you bought it? What year is it from? Uh, it was from 94. And the funny thing is like, we grew up listening the Vancouver music scene when we were growing up. Uh, There's a lot of great bands in it, but Hey Ocean was a band that we really loved. And there's another band named Set of the Whale and uh, the Zolas. Um, and these are all people we kind of like, know now through the music scene but this was hey oceans tour van and i bought it off the guy in hey ocean and i had just been such a big fan of the band for so long so like it already had this kind of like tour mystique around it when i got it from him and uh my brother-in-law actually played in hey ocean too this is like only recent that um you know i've come to know know him but we've like swapped so many stories about just like the gross things that have gone on in the backseat of that van being like, <laughs> Oh, you did that. Like, okay, let me tell you something Mikey did like, and then, <laughs> you know, it just goes back and forth, but that van's in the family. And uh, yeah, that'll always be a really fun memory too. What's the worst thing that's happened in the back of that van then? Oh man, nothing I can talk about on this podcast. <laughs> uh, nothing, nothing involving other people. It's just more like, you know, we've got a 10 hour drive ahead of us and, and someone's really bored in the back seat. So they do something really fucked up. I don't know. Pee, we, we peed in a lot of, in a lot of jugs uh, back there for sure. But that's kind of the extent of the stories I can tell. <laughs> it pops up in um, the video for Alrighty Aphrodite as well. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, did Lester do that? Yeah. Lester, yeah, he's done all our music videos. So was that actually shot backwards or how did that kind of operate? Yeah, that was. Yeah, the last scene was like the way we started that was we had these really thick wetsuits on and we had just like submerged in the water and it was like February or something like that. It looks freezing. Yeah, and and that was the second time we had shot it. We thought the first time didn't come out well enough, so we had to go back and do it. Uh, And we were so cold. But yeah, we started in the water and then like moved and had all these cues and and we were playing the song backwards and Neil had kind of like learned how to try to mime the words backwards um, and then ended it uh, in the van, which is the beginning of the music video. So yeah, that was a fun one, but I'll, I'll never 
be that cold again in my life. Like I'm just going to make <laughs> sure because yeah, I, I was close to tears. <laughs> I feel like two takes for a video that complex is pretty good though. Oh no. Uh, so it was like, we went out one day and oh, shot okay. like, and did like 20 takes got home and we were like this isn't good enough and then you know three months later drove out again but it was even colder the second time and uh well, did like snow isn't it uh yeah the first time it was really snowy and the second time it was like ice icy rain mixed with snow which was weirdly colder uh but yeah it was then we did it like 20 times that day and uh yeah we were just like in our wetsuits like in the water just like pissing ourselves to get some warmth and like we were like soldiers in world war ii well maybe that's not respectful to soldiers in world war ii but that's what it felt like i was like i can't imagine what you know the people who have fought in like such gnarly wars have gone through because i'm doing this for like three hours and i i'm about to you know just walk off and quit this is so hard <laughs> I was watching as well the video of you performing at CBC last year, yeah. I think. Yeah, it, It's interesting because a few of the songs from you and your friends pop up in it and you close on Poppy Grin, but it's a completely different kind of jazzed up version of it. Yeah, good question. Good question. Definitely been a, a hot topic of uh, discussion in the band. And we just had that as like a disco song and we had played it that way live a bunch of times we played that cbc music fest and we didn't even know that they were filming like they were and they were going to post it but they posted it and people got this idea of what the song was going to be and when we went into the studio with john uh john congleton he was just like you know there's something about you white guys playing disco that's just like not working here <laughs> and we were like okay like we can we can totally change this up basically just like worked on the song until we got it to the place it was that it is on the record i don't know in hindsight i really do like both versions i know some people like the disco -y version better but we did like record a demo of the disco -y version with uh violins like strings and stuff like that so m maybe we'll release that in some time in the future just to like appease the people who uh like the live version better but that song was just i think that's just what happens when you're writing a song and you decide to play it and people grab onto it, however, wherever it is in that process. And then, you know, it's kind of like stuck as a version of that. And then your final version of it is its own version. But uh, yeah, we never really intended to, to give people the disco version at all. I don't know where the disco version would slide in on the album. I don't know how you would kind of fit it in with everything that's there. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was like a really fun it made it a more fun song when it was more disco-y and maybe that's why people liked it. But I agree. I don't think it would have had like, and I, I also think that's why John really was like, you know, this disco vibe isn't doing it for me. And I think he was kind of looking at the album as like a broad piece of work, not just, uh, not just like this one fun song. Should this be dancey or should it be more, you know, stiff? I, I think that was his reasoning for it. And I think he was right in that regard. It didn't have as much of a place on the album uh, the other way. It's got a real bite to it now as well that really seems to kind of tie in nicely with the narrative and the kind of intent and the perspective that it's coming from. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, it, it definitely has more of a vibe that we would typically go for. But um, oh man, if I can just be completely honest with you, I actually like don't love that song. Uh, I, uh, I feel like that was one we recorded on the record that I was like, ah, oh, this didn't quite hit as hard as I wanted. And I know that like some people have really enjoyed it on the record and that's great but that's like a song i'm kind of like oh yeah 
we're gonna we're gonna be writing better ones than that. Like you know, the, this is the bar that I want to stay above, kind of thing. I think it's my sixth most listened to song on Spotify this year. No way, Alex. Okay, <laughs> well, man, I honestly appreciate that so much. Like you know, your anyone's experience with a song is their own. This happens to a lot of uh, bands is that they just like end up not liking some of their own songs because they played them so many times or for whatever reason. But yeah, I, uh, I I'm. I'm stoked when people love the songs that I'm like, I really don't know about that one. Like felt the same way about second life with Emily on you and your friends. And I saw the other day on Instagram, someone got like uh, some tattoo that had to do with that song. And I was like, here I was like not wanting to put it on the album, but someone got to experience it and they liked it so much. They got a tattoo of this song. So like, you know, there's a real beauty to that for me because this music isn't just for us it's for anybody that likes our stuff but it's you know people have such different perspectives than we do it depends where you're coming from with it as well like when i think back to me why that song resonated with me it definitely hit me at a very specific time with certain events that were going on Mm -hmm. and that's probably why you know for some people it kind of works in a different way yeah absolutely like music is so subjective the way you're gonna experience it yourself and and you know like and in a funny you know opposite to that your teeth uh that song on the record is like one of my favorite songs we've ever uh written and it's like the least listened to of all of our songs uh so that's just like what it meant to me because for me that was the first song we ever wrote in in an afternoon you know we had never just like sat down and written a song in the studio before and we did that with that song and it came out really cool and i was so proud of it and i still am but it doesn't resonate with people as much as like something like puppy grin or second life with emily so yeah there's just like different different viewpoints and perspectives to think about all over the album your two is pretty experimental as well though you're kind of pushing the tones and the sounds on that one in a little bit of a different direction yeah definitely we like tried some some different things melody wise over like chords we did this thing where we just like had this hanging chord as a bridge that never changed and it kind of was awkward but when like we changed the chord it released so much and we had never tried that trick before so it was like exciting and and like you know we were very pleased with the result of trying something new so yeah um that was just like you know pushing the limits of what we would usually do and i think that's another reason why it was a favorite like i don't think that version of puppy grin or Second Life with Emily, uh, really, we're pushing our limits like I felt your teeth was. But that's just because I've got the experience of being in this band, and that's my big point. Was it always the intention as well to get to have the record be more experimental as it went on? Because if you th- think of songs like Your Teeth or, or Thursday or You and Your Friends, they're kind of the ones that are at the back end of the album and are pushing it in a few different directions. Yeah, definitely. I think we actually walked into the album not really knowing what we wanted from it. And that really was because... We were just getting used to, you know, being a band as a job. And and that's weird. Like, you know, when you've been friends for so long, uh, stepping into like, okay, we're, you know, going to try to make a living at this together. But there's like dynamic switches in what you're doing. And, and it's not always like the, the cleanest, easiest transition. We're in a place right now where I feel like we've got that balance down so well. But starting the second record, we were like, okay, yeah first one did way better than we expected like what are we supposed to do now uh and we didn't have a lot of clear direction and that really was where john stepped in and was like yeah guys like uh this is what i see for your music and i think he did a really good job at executing a vibe for it but there was not like intention from us coming in it was really uh 
like us offering him this material we had written and him going like, Hey, I can see this as an album. Like, let me, you know, let me orchestrate this with tone and, and with order. He, John even ordered the album. And I think that's why, you know, Thursday, your teeth, you and your friends ended up being on the tail side of it. Yeah. I guess that's kind of exactly what the role of a producer is, isn't it? It's someone who can kind of come in and organize what you're trying to work with and help you kind of assemble it into this cohesive thing that people can kind of consume for lack of a better term yeah well i mean and that's not even the way that people are consuming music as much these days like you know listening to full albums through i love to do but um it's like you know all about playlisting and singles with spotify these days so i i still appreciate that john had that view of the album and like had a vision for it because even if you know, lots of people don't experience our music that way. I want people to be able to dig into it and experience it that way if they get there. He was a great producer and 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 is a great producer, but like we've just gone and recorded uh, six new tracks for uh, an album we're hoping to release in 2021. We'll see. But like this time feels so different. We're going in with like confidence of what we want and the producer is this guy named Robbie Lackritz. He's great. But, you know, like he is, his role is so different than John's was because we're really like piping up about what we want. And uh, the record is taking a totally different shape. Uh, So it's fun to also just like see us grow in that way and see like the production, the producer role change in that way. And, and, you know, every producer is going to be different, but I think John was really like the right place and the right time for us. Yeah, for sure. When it comes to, to writing the guitar parts for the record as well. We've, we've spoken a little bit about the way the production maybe pushes it in some slightly more psychedelic directions. Yeah. Although although Neil writes the lyrics, when you write the guitar parts, which complement them so nicely, do you take what he's feeling and kind of locate a situation in your life which matches up to it? Or how do you kind of complement the emotion in that way? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, I don't know. Writing is such an interesting thing. I think that, uh, you know, also in the journey of writing you and your friends at first, it was like, Hey, what kind of like sound, what kind of guitar riffs do I want on this record? Like what kind of scales and stuff like that. And and I was kind of like trying to come up with a lot more kind of like out there and weird, uh, guitar riffs and would bring them to the guys to put over the songs. And they would kind of go like, it's a cool guitar riff, but like, it doesn't really fit the song. And I was just trying to like force these parts that weren't necessarily very cohesive onto the song, but just like really had to take a step back and be like, okay, you know what? Like can't have any ego about these parts and just need to serve the song as best as possible. So really it's kind of like, what's the first thing that pops into your head when you hear when or the first thing that pops into my head when I hear Neil's song is usually the best thing for that song. Um, Sometimes that takes a bit of time to like get that riff perfected, but we were so uncomfortable with the idea of writing songs in the studio before, and now we can do it very comfortably, even though like we're writing on the spot because it's just like, okay, can we get something that feels good in the first 10 minutes of jamming the song? And if we can, then it's like, that was the most raw interpretation of what you think should be played over this specific song. And that's a really good thing. You know, you don't want to overthink this stuff too much, but yeah, a lot of it's luck too. Like when I think about, you know, some of the riffs I'm most proud of, like Tommy's party, like Neil just brought that song in and that was the first thing I played over that melody. And I think it was just because I was feeling the emotion of what he was singing and like really affected by his like beautiful melodies. And then like uh, something comes out of, me because i'm trying to do that and same with the other guys you know they're reacting to the song and uh i think it's just i think it's so hard to 
put into technical terms, but it really is just like an emotion thing. Like, you know, what, what kind of emotion is Neil expressing and what does that emotion sound like on guitar? What does that emotion sound like when it comes to groove for drums? Like that's, that's a very constant, like it's a weird concept, but it's definitely the way I think we all think about it when we go into writing. It's interesting. You mentioned Tommy's party there as well, because when I think of that song in comparison to this record, it's almost like Grateful Daddy in the way that, you know, you're completely stretching it as a band and kind of giving this room to breathe. Whereas the whole of you and your friends is a lot more kind of compressed and honed in and tight. Absolutely. Is that something that kind of happens in the pro? When do your ribs kind of take that shape in that way when they're kind of tighter and, and more locked in as opposed to breathing out? You know, I think one of the beautiful things about being a fresh band is you don't have really ideas of what you're supposed to do and not supposed to do. And it's funny, but like listening back to Tommy's party now, I'm just like, oh man, we could have cut out like a, a bridge. We could have cut out like a progression here. We could have made this thing more concise. I'm really happy we didn't. I'm happy it's it's five minutes long or whatever. And, and you just get to sit in that energy for a while. But I, you know, even with the music we love to listen to, like we're, we're big fans of classic rock and like we love the band and the Beatles. Like it, it kind of like comes back to what I was talking to before about like, what's it like to write a pop song? Like, you know, do you really want to overdo the part or do you want to give it to someone just enough so that they want to go back and listen to it again? Because there is like a, a, an art in like giving someone like on one of those new songs we just wrote, where like we cut out a chorus like sooner than feels natural, but it's like, we, we talked about it and we did that intentionally because we want someone to feel like, oh, I want more of that, you know, like, like, how do we put that feeling into somebody? So I think we were thinking about that on you and your friends and going, how can we construct this song to make someone go back and listen to it again, not feel like they've just, you know, been on a six minute acid trip uh, while this was playing and uh, are like, okay, I'm good with the, that song for a while. That's not really what happened with Tommy's Party. Like that was a very successful song for us, but I think we just think about that a little bit more these days than we did when we were writing the first record. It's a weird hit. You wouldn't expect that to be like your biggest song. No, absolutely not. But to be honest, we all kind of like really weirdly expected it to be too, because I think Neil just like really, he wrote about something that uh, is so universal. And that was like, not the end of a friendship, but like, you know how you just are close with people for some seasons of your life. And then you're like, they're more of like a background character in your life after that and and man that's just like part of growing up you know like I've been experiencing that in my 20s too like some of the people I was so close with uh in my early 20s like I just don't see as much and I think a lot of people experience that but to be honest I don't think there's a lot of music about that feeling of a friendship just kind of like it's not a breakup it's not like this like super you know cut thing but it's still really hard to like lose a, a what was a really special relationship and now is like a different thing. So I just think that theme was so genius to write about. And I think he nailed it with the lyrics. And I, when we all wrote that song, we were like, this is by far the best thing we've all written together. And we were so proud of it. So I, I'm really happy it did as well as it did because it really like spoke to us in a different way than the other stuff we've written. It's the way the soundscape of it as well completely captures that feeling you get, you know, when you're sitting in like the place where a party is taken place the mm. night prior and it's yeah. just like kind of deserted and it's kind of empty like beer cans and stuff scattered about and it, you can kind of feel the debris and it just feels a bit empty almost 
Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, I, one thing it makes me think of. I don't know if you've seen this movie, but um, Frances Ha is a uh, is a Greta yes. Gerwig movie. Yeah, and and it's the same theme. It's like her living in New York and her career not going well, and her best friend like is you know moving on to other things. And when I watched that movie, I was like, oh, like Neil had been telling me to watch it for so long, but I was like you totally got some inspiration from this for Tommy's party or, or even if you didn't, I've never talked to him about it, but even if you didn't, it's the same theme, you know, that feeling of like, Oh, I'm just not where I want to be with like this relationship or this like job or whatever. And I think that, yeah, just that, that same emotion I felt when I watched that movie was the same emotion I felt when I heard him play that song for us for the first time. It can prompt a lot of self-reflection as well. Like when you kind of have those encounters with people that you used to be so close with and you haven't seen in a while. And then when you finally meet up, you kind of realize how much you've changed in the interim. It's a weird kind of, you know, what happens after, after that encounter. Yeah, no, I I completely agree with you. And, and it's like, I don't know. I I think the thing, uh, because like, as we're, you know, writing a song like this, I've like experienced those emotions since that that song is about, but I think the like place I've come to with it is that uh, you can try to like hold on to what your past looked like, but realistically like life always changes and and you can try to like uh, roll with the punches or you can be like bitter about the punches you've taken, you know? So I I think when something significant happens in life, like, you know, uh, someone you're close with not being as close with you anymore, uh, you just got to be like, you know what? I'm grateful for the time I had with that person, with that relationship, and that'll always be a memory. But I, you can't have that expectation for the future. Did you ever used to play house parties and stuff as well? Uh, kind of yeah, a sign of that song took place, and yeah, yeah, definitely. We we played some house parties. They're all like pretty gnarly sound, pretty like raw. I don't know. When I think back to playing house parties with Peach Pit. Uh, our first show ever was a house party actually. And, uh, and it, you know, we were just thrashing our guitars and probably like sounded pretty rough. It it wasn't so much like this beautiful setting in which to play Tommy's party. It was just like, all right, we're here to party and like play, uh, you know, a song like already Aphrodite as loud as we can. So yeah, that was, uh, that was, that's my memory of house parties and playing them. You played a show at your dad's house once as well, right? Yeah, totally. That was the most awkward show we've ever played actually. Um, but it was a lot of fun. My dad is like our number one fan. He loves the band so much. And, uh, he had just like finished, he had just moved into this house and we were like, oh man, we'll play like a show at your house. But he was like, okay. And we were like, okay, yeah. Like if you want to have a housewarming, <laughs> we'll do it. And he was like, great. But he didn't really like organize a party. He just like told his friends to come over to like, uh, like only a few of his friends to come over to his house, uh, that night. So there was probably like 10 people there and it was so awkward. <laughs> I thought like he was going to have like a housewarming. It would be, you know, like a big <laughs> thing. But yeah, it was uh, it was a lot of fun too. And and we just love and appreciate my dad so much because he's like, he's literally flown around the world to go see us play in like Amsterdam and he uh, and he's always there and supportive. So did he, had he just moved out of the house that you grew up in? Uh, no, he was living at uh, another house before that, before he moved into this one. Uh, but yeah, he uh, he lives up like pretty close to us in, in the North Shore where we all grew up and lives up in the mountains and yeah, it's like a beautiful spot. Did you live in the same house all the way through as a kid or did you kind of move around quite a lot? Yeah, I uh, moved out of the house when I was like, well, well, we moved out of my childhood home when I was like in high school. And uh, yeah, my parents had like got like split up at that point and I actually moved to Deep Cove 
which is a neighborhood in Vancouver, uh, with my mom and Neil lived around there and we kept running into each other all the time. So like, uh, I remember that as being like a kind of tough time, uh, when I was a kid, but at the same time, like that was when, you know, I met Neil and we started talking about music and getting into it. So that was really like the start of that, the, the start of this whole band. A weird kind of contrast of emotions, kind of one aspect of your life is starting to kind of move in a really uphill positive direction. And the other is kind of in a weird place. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I think this really, uh, relates back to what we were saying of like, yeah, that was a hard time when I was a kid, but at the same time, instead of like, you know, you get, obviously it was like, a sad thing, but now looking back on it, it was also the beginning of this really beautiful thing. So like, you know, in the time that I was feeling super down about whatever the family situation was, um, my life as it is now was just like starting. And so, you know, the death of one thing can mean the life of another a lot. Your great grandmother lived with you till she was 96 as well, right? Actually, that's Neil. Uh, yeah, his his Gigi. Uh, but my my grandmother is 96 right now, actually. Shout out Grammy. Uh, so it's funny that you said that. I was just talking to her the other day. Is this the same grandmother that was unimpressed with the album title? Yeah, it was. Uh, but that's okay. I like, I mean, she got over it pretty quickly. I love her so much, man. She's the coolest grandma, but uh, she's like a very good christian woman so i can't really expect her to be okay with the word fuckboy. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty cool that she's on facebook at 96 though yeah yeah she is she uh she's badass she like is not doing too hot these days but really like has lived a super full life like has traveled from the age of 60 to 90 like so many times flown to africa a bunch of times to do work over there and uh yeah anyway Oh, my grandma. Was your great-great-grandfather really a legend amongst peach farmers, or is that another myth? Oh, man, that's totally a myth. Where, where did you hear that? <laughs> in an interview somewhere. I can never tell when you guys are doing interviews whether you're kind of... Um, Joking or not? Be, being silly, yeah. Or, oh, man. Or if it's true. That must have been a super old interview. Yeah, I'm sure we said that, uh, but... I <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, I think most of the time we're pretty serious, but that was, that was probably an example of us just, you know, being ridiculous for no reason. While we're debunking some myths then, was the guitar for Shampoo Bottles really written about your childhood cat named Push Push, or was that another one? <laughs> uh, was the guitar for written about that? Yeah, my, my cat's name uh, as a kid was Push Push, and uh, that's always been a joke of mine where, uh, you know, my girlfriend's like, oh, I really like the, this song or something, like a new song we've written. I'm like, yeah, I wrote the guitar riff about you. But like, what does that even mean? You know what I mean? Like, I don't write guitar <laughs> riffs about anything. Like, I just try to make them sound cool. But I think I've just used that joke a bunch of times and probably said that in some interview because, yeah, I thought it was funny. It's interesting what we've been speaking about a little bit and this idea of the way that life changes and we kind of move away from people sometimes. And also the kind of the way that the relationship with you guys and the band has changed a little bit over the years. Because mm -hmm. you said something in an interview which really struck me about how in order to have fun with the band, it can't be like all of your identity. You can't let it completely consume you. Mm -hmm. Because w when it's going good, it's r amazing. But then when it's not, it really hits you hard. Yeah. Definitely. Was that realization something you came to through experience or is that something you've always had from the beginning and the start? I think it's just really the feeling of um, noticing how many successful people in the entertainment industry are really miserable and seeing that and just going like, well, okay, let's try to think why is that? 
how do we not come to a place where we actually aren't enjoying life because like this isn't going to be worth doing even if it goes well if we're not enjoying doing it we had a time when we were coming up where it was just super exciting and uh you know this is a little bit embarrassing we wake up every morning and like look at how spot our, our spotify was doing or something and and you know i would just notice like back then i would look at it and the days that like monthly listeners went down, I was like, Oh, that really bummed me out or something, you know? And there was no reason to be bummed out, but to, to like let that dictate my emotions was such a foolish thing to like put stock in. So yeah, just, just trying to like, I, I actually, I love this quote. I just heard it recently. Uh, Dave Chappelle, a comedian said this, but he was like, if you're going to invest time into your celebrity self, the more you do that, the less self you have left for you. So, you know, the more we try to like cultivate our image and put effort into like who we are as a band, the less we really are like leaving for ourselves. And I think we're at a place where our branding really is just like who we are. You know, we're not really like trying to put anything on for anybody. We're just having a good time and and just trying to like share the more real image of of what day-to-day life is like for us. And I think that that is then a much healthier way to approach like even the mild sense of fame that like we've experienced. But I, I just think that, yeah, that observation just really did come out of, um, okay, how do we, how do we like maintain healthy relationships with each other and within ourselves uh, through like something like this happening, uh, you know, our band doing well, because it seems like a weird question to have to ask yourself, but yeah, if you're not going to handle it well, then it's not going to serve you well. You know, the, the personality of the band and the way you guys are on social media and the way that people see you is just completely yourself. Mm-hmm. As the band gets bigger, does that kind of get tougher? Because when so many people know about you, you kind of, there, there's elements of yourself that you need to keep for yourself, whereas when you go home, it must be kind of weird, this feeling that everyone kind of knows you. Is it? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, even personally for me, like, Obviously, there's like pressure to keep social media going, but like uh, Neil like stopped doing anything to do with social media because he wasn't liking how it was affecting his mental health. And I was just like, "Dude, that's awesome! Like, don't don't do it if it's uh, that's happening." And Mikey, Mikey, and Peter are kind of the same way. So I'm just kind of like running it by myself these days. And you know, like the thing is, I do enjoy doing it, but yeah, there are just like lines of personal stuff that I wouldn't share. And just and trying to find that line of things that are good to share and and nice to share, but like not too much. That's a, a like tricky line to walk, but I think it's a line I get better at walking all the time because I'm just like you don't want to give someone a perfect view into your life, but you want to share the like nice moments that you can or like whatever you know random moment I have in a day that seems like a good thing to share with whoever likes Peach Pit. I you know, when we get messages from people who are like, oh, you know, this made me laugh. It's just like, okay, yeah, like this is still building community. And I like feeling that community with people who listen to our music. Do you have conversations about that kind of thing a lot? The, the way that you're kind of interacting with it and the, the way that it's developing? Because obviously you kind of four people who can completely relate to the same experience with each other in that way. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, we definitely chat about it. Honestly, man, I talked to my therapist about it more than anyone else <laughs> because I, I just need to like be able to invent this stuff or, or anything I'm feeling because, yeah, in, in the 21st century with social media, you don't have to be in a successful band to feel the 
like weight that social media brings to your life if, you, if you're using it in an unhealthy way. So I, I think that for me, I, I probably wouldn't even be on it if we didn't have this band going. I don't mind doing it because like I said, like when I see connection with uh, the fans of our band, like I think that is amazing. But I think everybody using social media just needs to be wary of how they're viewing it and how they use it. And, and like what the gratification uh, that they're getting out of it is like, and is it a healthy gratification or is it not? So um, yeah, I, it's just like a conversation I'm having inwardly all the time and, and definitely something we talk about from time to time. In the band. What would you say is the most meaningful conversation you've had as a group and as a band together and how has that then affected what the project means to you as four individuals? Are there like certain conversations that kind of stand out when you look back at the trajectory you've kind of been on the last few years? Yeah, it's a really good question. Man, we, uh, when we're together, we are goofing off like most of the time, for sure. Yeah, yeah, I can't think of specific conversations we've had, but we, when we're like in the studios together and stuff, there's not as many like hard, deep conversations we're having about where this is going and what we're doing. We are just like, Mikey is usually making us laugh and we're like joking around with each other. And, and that's really like my favorite time with this band is when we're, just kind of like being goofy and having a blast. So that's more my memory or, or like my thoughts on on the time we spend together. But as far as just like moments I remember uh, that were big conversationally, I just just remember like the feeling of when we first started coming up and us being so elated with each other that like, man, this is literally our dream come true. And sharing that feeling with someone is so special. I can't imagine how it would feel to be a solo artist and have that happen because like when there's no one to share it with, I think it's a lot harder to enjoy. But those are like the most meaningful like memories I have of us just talking about this band and where it was going. I guess that's why it can be quite isolating as a solo artist and you see a lot of them struggling when they kind of go on that rise because there isn't anyone that they have that they can kind of share any experience with. Not in the yeah. same way that you guys do. No, I, I completely agree. Like I, I think it would be so much harder not having anybody to relate to on that level. I've noticed like a personality quality and a lot of like solo artists that even before they start being successful, they've got this, like, I'm going to be a star attitude. And we never had that. We never had expectations that this was going to do as well as it did. We never were like uh, thinking we were the shit or anything like that. But some people, some solo artists that I've noticed with that attitude uh end up doing well because it's just like what their minds focus is but there it's so much their minds focus that like their whole being kind of like represents that like goal and that trajectory and i i think that you know sometimes i've noticed that reoccurring trait in in an artist because that's something that drives them to do well but it's just never been like the thing that's driven us to do well in this band so we, we just feel like we accidentally got here you know what i mean we just feel like we won the lottery somehow you almost keep each other grounded in that way i think so yeah honestly like try not to talk about the band with our friends even that much because it's just like yeah it's going well but like you know this doesn't need to be a point of conversation all the time uh and i even even with each other, like we're not talking about the band mostly. We're just talking about video games or talking about poker or talking about whatever else. And I, I think it's important to try to like cultivate a world in which, you know, our career isn't the center of our conversations and, and focus all the time. It's just something we do because it keeps it the most healthy for us and um, it does keep us grounded for sure. 
Yeah. I feel like getting tickled all the time probably keeps you grounded as well. If you start oh, from like man. a rock star and you get attacked by a tickle monster. Yeah, totally. I can always tell if Mikey's like had a good week or a bad week, if he tickles me or not. And sometimes <laughs> it's like, he won't have tickled me for a month. And I'm like, man, are you okay? Like, <laughs> come on, come on, just reach in there. Give me a little tickle. Uh, but yeah, I, oh man, for a couple tours there, Mikey was just like relentlessly tickling me and everybody just thinks it's so funny. <laughs> it's like, okay, man, I, I honestly think that it's funny too, but it's my worst fear. Like I have like such a thing with being touched unexpectedly, <laughs> unexpectedly like that. Yeah. Are you constantly on edge when that's happening? Yeah. Yeah. Because once he does it, I'm like in a mood where I'm like anybody walking by me, like makes me jump. So I think that's just like, he, he loves to see that like terrified look on my face and that's why he does it. What do you think about most that isn't music? You know, we're speaking here about the way that your identity is kind of made up of a lot of different things and it isn't just concerned by this one thing that does play. Although it plays a big role in your life, it's important that it's not the complete thing. Music definitely occupies a lot of my mind and a lot of time there. But um, I don't know. I, I feel like through COVID this last little while, I've been really grateful for my relationships with my family. And uh, just like, especially over COVID, I think everybody is being faced with what their choices have brought them to in their life right now because you're at home and you're just doing whatever and and it just force and that boredom almost forces you to look at at your life and and what you love about it and, and maybe what you don't and i i honestly am so grateful i feel like i've got a really uh i'm really fortunate i've got a really great life but just uh kind of like I think this time has made me think about what I want the future to look like and what do I want to, what do I want my choices to look like then? And, and just spending time kind of just meditating on that has been huge for me lately. We're like such big Beatles fans and we watched this George Harrison documentary all together and just really kind of, and it's the Martin Scorsese doc that he did called uh, living in the material world. And it's amazing. If you haven't seen it, you should check it out. But it, like, it's like four hours long, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's like part one and part two. You only really need to see part one. Part two is great if you love part one, but uh, there's something about watching someone like George Harrison become more famous than anybody had ever been in the world and watching how empty uh, that left him. And really how empty it left a lot of the guys. And uh, then like his turn to kind of like a spiritual nature and, and just kind of trying to find like, you know, okay, this isn't the answer to like being satisfied in like this kind of success or like fame or whatever. You know, for me, it just that experience watching that movie really made me want to try to be like, okay, yeah, you know, like here we are. And we're just like, a, a, we're doing well as a band, but I don't want to chase this dragon of what, of what this success is going to do as far as satisfaction, because look at this guy up at the very top of the mountain being like, yeah, you know what? This really isn't that great. Uh, and, and just kind of like has made me shift my focus to be like, okay, like what, what do I want to find? Like what's the healthiest place to pull joy out of, you know? Yeah. That's what occupies my mind more than anything else these days. I guess what you're saying there, it's like George Harris, when you get to the top of that pyramid, the pool of people that you can resonate with and share like meaningful conversations with is kind of reduced to a certain degree because no one understands your headspace in the same way they do when you're all going through the same struggles. Man, I can't imagine what it would have been like to be a Beatle and, you know, only have each other to really know what it's like to go through what they went through. 
and you don't even like your bandmates. Like, I mean, you know, maybe maybe that's totally unfair. I think that they get portrayed and their story gets portrayed as having a lot more uh, drama in it than was actually there. I think they were like a lot closer friends, really. But, you know, the fact that they were like, they broke up when they did and they didn't want to tour anymore. Like they had just reached a point pretty quickly where like they didn't want to spend the time together that they were spending together that it required to spend to make the music that they did together. So the metaphor of being at the top of the pyramid is great because you know, everyone's looking up at you and being like, how's the view from up there? And it's like, it's the same as your view. Like, like you just look down too, you know, like it's just a little bit more scary. There's a little bit less room to stand up here. So I think that that's, uh, that's the way I'm kind of trying to look at uh, where we're at as a band and just like the attitude we want to have with it. Yeah. Just, it's about, yeah, it's about keeping perspective to a certain degree as well. Yeah. hundred percent. Just like, yeah, stand grounded and, and just understanding that, you know, this is exciting, but, but yeah, it isn't like what life's all going to be about. Like one day we're not going to be a band anymore. You know, one day we're not going to be making music and if all our, and if like that joy is only coming off of how many Spotify numbers we have, like that's, that's going to fizzle and, and it's going to be really hard to deal with not having that as your identity. So yeah, just focusing on self outside of what you do, I think for anybody is important really. I think the gift of of doing something and it being successful like this band is you get to experience the success and go like, okay, like, you know, this isn't even what it's all about uh, versus striving for that and kind of having an idea that that's what it's all about. So I, I do think that the perspective we've gotten from just being in this band is hugely helpful as well, just in life as a whole. Have you always had that foresight you're speaking about there and that ability to not just lose yourself in the moment and be able to put yourself in the shoes of someone 20 years on? Yeah, I don't know. Like, not all of our parents, but me, Peter, and Neil's parents were all Christians and they kind of like raised us in the church. And um, that's not really where we're at these days. But at the same time, I think one thing that was beneficial about that experience was you're like very encouraged talk about your feelings and emotions like in a in that religious kind of spiritual setting and kind of ended up just being like something I feel like I've been able to carry through on the rest of my life and and I think Neil and Peter have too and Mikey you know just even being around it uh has has kind of like gained that perspective so I, I really look at that early formative experience as like the place where I was like, okay, you know, it's healthy to talk about emotions. It's good to talk about emotions. It's very therapeutic to, you know, try to psychoanalyze why you're feeling what you're feeling and what you can do to make yourself feel better if that needs to change. Does music occupy that role in your life now that religion used to? Is it that kind of means of expressing yourself in that way and and releasing those emotions? Yeah, in some ways. Like, I think that religious experience wasn't like an artistic experience. It was was more a communal experience. And, the community that I feel from the music scene in Vancouver is similar in a way. Actual like expression through an instrument is just kind of like trying to take an emotion and turn it into a sound for us. And that wasn't so much like a, that's not like a religious idea so much as just the idea of community and communication that were like big themes inside of that religious community. And those are just like ones we even like have in the band because we you know always want to be talking to each other we always like don't want to have weird air in the room because someone hasn't been able to say what they need to to someone else like it's just kind of a a philosophy and and how to 
treat your relationships and treat your life. Has the way you communicate as a group in that way changed as you've evolved as a band? Uh, yes, it's gotten better. Um, it's gotten a lot better. And I would say that when we were first starting out and first touring, I felt really like less sure of myself than I did back then. And I think there was a lot more like, uh, there was like less direct communication and it was more just like, sometimes when you're on tour and you have been around each other for a long time, like you communicate in like unhealthy, passive aggressive ways, or at least like I noticed myself doing that. And I think, you know, that was part of learning how to be in a band, but, uh, but yeah, it, it's something that I think we are a lot better at now. And I think it's just a maturity thing too, you know, to just put that focus into it's less worrying about like, oh, what are they going to think of me if, if I say this? And it's more like, you know what, I'm feeling this way. And to have the healthiest relationship I can with these people, I need to be able to just like be honest about that. Yeah, there's something nice about having a space on your own where you can be free, but there's something even nicer about having a space around other individuals where you can be free in that way. Yeah, absolutely. And we're just like the most comfortable around each other than we've ever been. And that's what makes touring so fun now is like, you know, it was for me, it was weird to get used to at first, but now it's just like, we don't feel like talking. We don't talk. And if everybody's in a mood to do something crazy, we'll do something crazy. And uh, yeah, just like, you know, respecting people's boundaries and stuff like that, because no matter what, being in a band is a complicated relationship. You know, you're spending all this time together. You're trying to do something creative together. You're doing something that you're like financially dependent on together, your business partners, like all those three things end up making the relationships I have with the guys we all have with each other. Like, you know, there's more dynamics to it than like my relationship with my girlfriend. There's a lot of things to keep in check. And I think it's just important for all bands to like recognize that, yeah, it's a complicated relationship and it's good to, good to have conversations as much as you can. When it comes to boundaries there, what, you know, what we're kind of speaking about, which of you was kissed on the lips by Matt DeMarco? Because that's someone kind of going past boundaries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was me uh, who got kissed <laughs> on the lips by him. And yeah, totally, man. Sure, that might have that might have crossed some boundaries for some other people, but I was stoked. I was <laughs> like, I cannot believe it. I was just like softly touching my lips the whole drive home. That was just like kind of nice to see because I think a guy like Matt DeMarco has you know kept. And though he's like so outrageous and goofy, like I think that is really who he just truly is. And I think that's what people appreciate about him is there's like a genuineness in uh, his branding and how he presents himself. But uh, to, to, you know, the first interaction we've ever had with them, I was driving away and just being like, hey, man, that was a great set. Like, you know, what a boring thing to say. And his reaction was just to like kiss me on the lips and tell me that I wasn't his witness. I was his, bu his butterfly or something like that. <laughs> uh, and and like, it's, yeah, it's just so odd. So I don't know. I uh, Obviously, it's 2020 and you can't go around kissing people without consent. But I was just kind of like touched that Mac DeMarco is as crazy a dude in like an interaction like that as he is when he's like, you know, playing a show or whatever <laughs> how old were you at this point uh that was only like two years ago i think i was like 24 i mean 2020 has been such a weird year that it kind of like changes my time perception but yeah i think it was either two or three years ago we were speaking about a little bit farther back when you guys so you guys were all you said you were all raised christian yeah you went to a catholic school right yeah me and neil went to catholic school um and i stayed there for two years and then moved to another school because i really wasn't digging it 
and Neil was there all the way through. But uh, yeah, Micah wasn't raised Christian, but me and Peter were like friends in youth group uh, all throughout uh, elementary school and, and high school and stuff like that. We were speaking about how it's you know it's enabled you to speak about your feelings in a certain way, and that's one positive thing that stuck around from it. Is there anything else that you think has kind of carried through from that experience into your worldview today that affects your life in a positive way? Yeah, definitely. I don't know. I You know, there's good with the bad and there's bad with the good. Like, I think there's things I think back on that I was taught uh, at that time. And I, I think they were really unhealthy things to teach a child. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I'm not going to teach if I ever have kids one day, I'm not going to teach them those same things. So, like, definitely wasn't like a completely... 100% positive experience, but the I really like the idea of what religion is supposed to be as far as being like a community that people like can come to for help or come to for uh, guidance or come to for something, but it just gets twisted into not that all the time. Uh, but those aspects that I do love of what it's supposed to be, um, I think I still experience those. And yeah, that was just having a community and having a place to like talk about what I felt like what it felt like for me to be a teenager because teenagers need those outlets and especially for guys you know I think there's a lot of like stigma that is being lifted these days about like dudes not really talking about their feelings I mean I even have friends who don't like talking about their feelings and I had to like learn to not go to that subject matter with them because it was uncomfortable for them and that was fine it's like you know you don't owe me a deep conversation we can just like have a bunch of laughs and this is totally like a really awesome interaction either way but i think that you know growing up in in that religious setting just like kind of set the stage to be like okay it's healthy to talk about shit yeah religion's almost a little bit like communism it's a great idea it just doesn't always work in practice as a few problems kind of emerge yeah absolutely man it's like i Every, I think one thing that people are missing, I mean, especially more than ever these days, but it's just like community, you know, when you think about human history, I think the idea of like packing people into apartments uh, and having them so many in the same place is like a lot of those people end up with less community than they might have had growing up in a small town or small village like 200 years ago or whatever, like there, it's less community focused people are these days, I think. And I just think that that's like something people really need, whether they find it through a religious way or they find it just through like the friend group they have or they find it through a hobby or whatever. It's just something that doesn't have as much emphasis on it uh, that I think people, you know, don't talk about as much as they need to, because I, I think everybody needs that sense of community to a certain extent yeah it's this idea of the third place like you have the home you have the workplace and you used to have the church this kind of third place that you can go for yeah. community and now that's kind of changing for a lot of people that's a different place some people it can be a music venue for the people it can be yeah. a, a bookstore or with a book group i don't know you know it's it's finding this other sense of community oh, absolutely yeah like like a, a music scene even you know even i like we played this kingfisher blues christmas party uh two nights ago and uh, I was just thinking how like this is my community like all these bands that play this every year uh, they're all Vancouver bands and they're they're all amazing and going and being able to like play a live stream show uh, and and like seeing all these people on camera just like totally filled me up because we haven't been able to be in the same room for a year and that and that made me realize like yeah this is where I get that sense of community out of it's just like these people sharing their music us sharing ours and other people in the room connecting to it too so yeah wherever you find that I think it's great where you do but 
for me, it's that. And I, I just think that anybody like wanting more community, it, like you need to find a place like that to, to be able to feel those things. A lot of your songs often come from like a sense of community or group as well. Like if you look at something like, I mean, we've spoken about Tommy's part and stuff, but like Live at the Swamp as well. Yeah. Which is kind of written about this, this experience of a group of people in a certain place. Yeah, totally. That's just all of us like sitting in a circle camping, doing acid and, and just like having a really fun day together, you know? And yeah, that's community too. That's just like the same thing. Yeah. We've been talking about just having that, that like group of, of people you can just sit around in like this swampy forest with and have a great day, you know? <laughs> The stuff you're doing with the production on that as well is so psychedelic, you know, with the the kind of the vocal panning stuff and the guitar tones, and you've got that solo as well at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that a lot of those like psychedelic sounds were really John, but I think he just heard what that song was about and he was like, okay, this is going to just be like as trippy as we can make it. And I, I really like how what he did with it. I thought it was awesome. Brian's movie was written on acid as well, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was. Like a lot of it at least. I, I was just we went away to this cabin to write that song together. And we, uh, I had brought this 12 string that I was renting from a local music shop and, and had like a, this phaser pedal and the slide. And Neil had like the beginnings of the song, but we started jamming it while we were tripping. And I uh, remember just playing the song, maybe jammed it for like 10 minutes and just repeated it over and over again. And at the end of that, Neil just like put down his guitar and he was like, that's a good song. Like, hell yeah, let's take a cigarette break kind of thing. And he like wrote it in 10 minutes and then went and relaxed again. But it was just like, you know, of that moment of like, oh man, you know, I see why the Grateful Dead did this. I see why this is such a experience because you're like, experiencing the music so differently we're going to places we wouldn't maybe usually go as you kind of progress as a band do you have to find other ways to do that to kind of put yourself in a different headspace and a different perspective to kind of approach music in a different way in that manner yeah 100 percent. i think no matter what you're going to run out of ideas if you're trying the same process over and over and over again neil really pushes himself with his songwriting which i think is great but like um on the new songs we're recording right now you know even like something like buying a new guitar or like learning to play other songs i think that's actually a huge maybe the the biggest like inspiration for writing ourselves is that you learn how to play a song and you're like oh what's that chord they're using in that song or like what's that change that's so cool I, i like that and then we've like taken something from that song that we're covering and put it into our own song like tommy's party the second chord is this like C sharp major seventh dominant fifth. Like, I actually don't know what it's called, but it's a chord that we were covering, uh, Freaking Out the Neighborhood by Mac DeMarco. And the first two chords of Freaking Out the Neighborhood by Mac DeMarco and Tommy's Party are the same two chords because Neil just went, Oh, okay. Like, I really like what he did there with that. Let me just like slow it down and add a different ending and write a new melody. But, you know, those, those like points of inspiration really help uh, the writing process. When we're trying to write does that change the way you listen to that song as well when you kind of learn to play it in that way uh yeah yeah definitely it changes the song and that you know i'll always just think of it as like this is this is like a place that was very inspiring to to come to and to learn from so yeah when we like take songs like that and, and kind of I, I mean i think everybody does that i think they take music and they are just like hey how can we tweak this and make it kind of our own um but you just end up recognizing those those points of inspiration that's like okay cool like this is what we're drawing from to make our own thing you know like we need this influence to be able to create our work what do you feel has been the biggest catalyst in terms of the evolution of your songwriting process as a group 
What's had the biggest impact on it and changed it in the most profound way for you? Honestly, working with this guy, John Congleton, probably was the most profound thing we were able to do. Oh, man, I really hope he doesn't hear this because uh, <laughs> he would be he would be giving me shit for it. But like, to be honest, working with that guy was like, I feel like I'm working with a genius, like someone who's worked at their craft for so long. that They just have like such a finely tuned ear for this thing. John did stuff on the record, like uh, change the direction of Puppy Grin or something like that. And he, uh, and some people didn't like that, but to, but, you know, to recognize, like you said, uh, how he turned that song so that it had a place on the record is really smart. And that was just like a way of abstract thinking that we just didn't have. But yeah, working with him was a huge influence. We've like become such giant Beatles fans in the last two years, like not just the hits, but we've just been like really diving into that discography and just like watching uh, or like studying the songwriting of a band like that, you know, for me, like studying the guitar parts that George Harrison wrote, like it's a very like fine tuned uh, technique they had down for writing and just to kind of try to get in those guys' heads and be like, how did you do that? It's like... You know, we, we want to write songs that make people feel the same way. Not that we'll ever get there, but uh, it's it really is like a huge inspiration on, on like how we want to approach it. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.